celebrate that. We as a church are incredibly proud of you and are excited to see what God is going to do through you in the future. Uh, I also want to challenge you. Uh, graduating from high school is not the kind of thing that God celebrates. And, and if you go off to college and you, uh, you graduate from college, that's also not the kind of thing that God celebrates. And you go off to, to the workforce and you get a six-figure job and you get a bank account and the millions, that's also not the kind of thing that God celebrates. Those are all great things, and we hope that you accomplish everything that you, you set out to do, and you, you, you check off every box and meet every goal. We really hope that you do, but, but God celebrates the things that matters for an eternity. God celebrates the, the things that are, that are going to matter when you die. So God celebrates the moments where you are walking in step with him and, and glorifying God in the world and, and making much of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel to the people around you. So we as a church, are sending you out. We're sending you to Oklahoma and to Lubbock and to Fort Worth and to the Navy to, to glorify God wherever you are as, as mouthpieces and missionaries for the gospel. And so we are, we are so excited to see you go forth from this building, but I want you to be about the things that God is about. I want you to go celebrate the, the things that God celebrates. Go make much of Jesus wherever you find yourself. Tomorrow, a year from now, and for the rest of your lives. Let me pray for you. I'm going to know the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wins in life, the, the, the moments of celebration. Thank you for the, the major accomplishments, like, like graduating from high school. God, I thank you that, that we can work up to something, that we can work for something and experience the, the joy of completing it. God, I thank you for those wins, those, those momentary celebrations in life. But God, I pray that we would have at the forefront of our minds, what truly matters. And that's, that's making much of you in our world. That's lifting up your name in a world that desperately needs to hear it. So God, I pray for every single one of us that this morning we would open up your word and be shaped and conformed into your image so that we can go out of this building and lift up your name in the world. God, raise us up, train us this morning, and send us out as missionaries for the gospel. We love you and praise you, and it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Have you ever accidentally offended somebody? Like, maybe it was something that you said, and, and you didn't mean it, but as soon as the words came out, you're, like, trying to grab them out of the air, and you're like, I, don't, I did not mean to say that. Uh, or maybe you didn't find out until much later that something you just kind of said haphazardly really offended somebody. I, I have a tendency to uh, speak a little too quickly. It means I haven't, uh, I haven't fully adopted and absorbed the... The, the wisdom from Solomon that says he who holds his tongue is prudent, right? Uh, so I, I have a tendency to, to, to say something and, and want to grab it out of the air right as I say it because I didn't think it fully through. And apparently it was a lot worse when I was younger. So I don't want to incriminate myself at the moment uh, anytime recently. But I'm going to go all the way back to when I was four because kids will say the worst stuff, you know? Um, so I was four. I lived in California, and uh, my mom had just had my younger sister, uh, Becca, and uh, she was trying to work off the baby weight, and we were in our home, and she, she, uh, she asked my dad out loud a question you should never ask in front of a kid, which was, do I look fat? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I was just with full enthusiasm. Now, listen, I was joking, but four-year-olds are terrible comedians. Like their, their timing is way off. Their delivery is flat, and they can't read a room. So I, I was joking, but she didn't get it. And so she was offended, and rightly so. Like my, my careless words, my, my haphazard speech, uh, my poor attempt at a joke uh, offended, offended my mom. 
Now, last uh, two weeks ago, we started talking through the story of the Bible. What, what is it that God is revealing in Scripture? God is revealing himself and his redemptive plan for mankind. So uh, we started talking through what that looks like, what God uh, was, uh, is telling us through Scripture. And two weeks ago, we, we started with creation, that God made a perfect world where everything was, was right, where everything was at peace, where everything was ordered and organized to bring praise and glory to God, and everything was at rest. And then we, last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 3 and the fall. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, and, and they introduced sin and death into the world, and the, the whole created order was upended, and, and now sin and death are reigning in this world. And so you have a holy God and sinful people in a world that is marred and broken by our sinfulness. And if you're following the story, if you're like the ancient Israelites who are hearing this from God, you're probably wondering, how does this play out? Right? How, how does this dichotomy between a, a holy God and sinful people play out? We know that it exists, and we know that it plays out in some way because we're here, but how, how does that play out? What does it look like? And in, in Genesis chapter 6, God begins to explain exactly how that plays out. So look with me in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, God says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these are the mighty men who were of old, the men of the renown. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve were not the last human beings. Uh, that is not something that we can take for granted. Adam and Eve were the first human beings. They, they rebelled against God. They sinned, and they introduced sin and death to the world. Um, but it is only by the grace of God that they were not the last human beings. Like God allowed them, as sinful, broken people, to continue to have kids, to, to continue life on. Right? So... They had a few kids. They had Cain and Abel, who had a, a pretty famous feud. And uh, Cain killed Abel. And that proved that, that the sinfulness of the parents was being passed on to the kids, that this sinfulness is a, is a hereditary idea where every single one of us is broken and, and, and inclined to rebel against God. And so uh, Cain and Abel had a feud. Uh, Cain kills Abel. God gives uh, Adam and Eve another son named Seth and countless other kids that are not mentioned in the Bible, but, but their kids start having kids, and their kids start having kids. And then soon enough, the world is, is teeming with people. They're uh, filling up with, with more and more people on the face of the planet. They are fulfilling what God told them to do, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and they are, they are doing that. But they're filling the earth with sinful, broken people. I mean, look at verse 1. The, while man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of man, God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, before I get into this, the, the Hebrew in these four verses specifically is notoriously difficult to translate and to interpret. So uh, I'm going to teach you what I believe these four verses are, are teaching us, 
based on the context of the passage and based on other passages of scripture, but, but just know that there are scholars who would disagree with my interpretation of these next four, the first four verses of this chapter. But whether, you may disagree with me on my interpretation of, the, uh, of these first four verses, and that's fine. In the end of the day, the main idea of these first four verses doesn't change, and that's what matters. So in verse uh, one, man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, remember, God gave Adam and Eve a son named Seth. And in Genesis chapter 5, the chapter right before this, Seth had a kid and his kid had a kid and his kid had a kid. And there's a whole genealogy listed in Genesis chapter 5. And, and uh, Genesis chapter 4, the last verse of Genesis chapter 4, it says that in the days of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's this idea that Seth and his line are, are not entirely righteous, but at least they're people who follow God. Uh, and then there are people who do not follow God. A, a good example of people who follow God from Genesis chapter 5 in the line of Seth would be Enoch. He's a guy listed in Genesis chapter 5 who, who it says he walked with God. In fact, he never died because God took him. God said, you're righteous, you're walking with me, and he just took him straight up to heaven. So there, there's, there are examples of people in Genesis chapter 5 in the line of Seth who are godly people, righteous people, who are, who are seeking after God, following after God, and walking with him. And there are countless other people who are not following God. And countless other people who are rebelling against God, countless other people who are, who are not following God. And so there are those who are sons of God, those who are, who are righteous people, who are following after God, and those who are daughters of men, daughters of of people who are not following after God, who are not righteous people, who are, who are in open rebellion against God. And, and those who are following God look at the daughters of men and say, they're attractive, and begin to take as their wives any that they chose. And what you have is a, a multiplication, a, a reproduction of evil and wickedness. Because you have godly men choosing ungodly wives and, and filling the planet with, with all means of unrighteousness and wickedness. It's not that the, the righteous men are made more, make their wives righteous. The, the unrighteous women are bringing down the righteous men and vice versa so that the whole world is being filled with people who are in open rebellion against God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any that they chose. So God, in seeing this brokenness and seeing this rebellion, responds, in verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So God sees the wickedness. God sees the, the brokenness. God sees the, 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 the evil that is being multiplied on the face of the earth. And he says, that's it. 120 years, I'm doing away with it. 120 years, I am, I am ending all of mankind. And, and the text goes right back to it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Uh, that Nephilim is a weird word for us that most likely translates fallen ones, fallen people. Uh, fallen people were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there is a, a multiplication of wickedness and evil on the face of the earth. And there, there are uh, people who are held in great honor and great renown and great strength, people who are lifted up on a pedestal, and they all have one thing in common. They do not follow God. 
All of those people who are lifted up as, as kings and rulers and strong people and, and people to follow, they're all being lifted up. They're all fallen ones. They're all broken people. They're all ones who are not living in, in, in relationship with the Lord. And so the world is being filled and populated with all manner of unrighteousness, all manner of wickedness. And the people that we're putting on pedestals are all wicked, are all broken, are all in rebellion against God. That This paints a, a picture of a world who is, uh, that's completely marred by brokenness, completely marred by sin. That, that sin that took root in Genesis chapter 3 has now spread to everything here in Genesis chapter 6. There's not one person, there's not one thing in the world that isn't touched and marred by the corruption of sin here in Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that the, that the wickedness of man was not changing. I notice that word only in verse 5. is the, the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. Their sinfulness, their wickedness was not some small, you know, hidden away in some small corner only affecting a, a decision here and there. Like they're not 98% good people that just have a few flaws. They're not inherently righteous people that, that just maybe got into some trouble. Every single part of their heart is wicked. Every single part of their heart is broken and sinful. All of their thoughts, all of their actions, everything that they're doing is, is all rooted in their, their wickedness and their brokenness before God, their sinfulness and their desire to rebel against the Creator. That was the impetus for everything that they were doing. So that rebellion from Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve started was taking root and, and holding firm and holding strong in every single life on planet Earth here in Genesis chapter 6. They were all broken. They were all wicked. They were all evil completely in an unchanging manner. So in, again, in, in verse 6, God responds. God responds to that wickedness, that brokenness, that sinfulness, that evil, God responds in Genesis chapter 6, and he says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Like, How does this play out? How does this dichotomy between a holy God and a sinful people play out? It plays out with sinful people offending a holy God. It plays out with broken, wicked people earning the wrath of God. God regretted that he had made him. Now that word regretted doesn't mean that he didn't see it coming and then just kind of felt bad at the outcome. That word more accurately uh, talks about the, the offensiveness of their sin. It was, it was regrettable. It was offensive to him. The, the, the wrath and anger that it deserved. Like God regretted that he had made man. It was so bad. It was so terrible that God decided he wanted to wipe him out. Like the wickedness of man came before him and he was so offended that he decided, I'm done 
with all of this, 120 years from now, I am wiping out every man, every woman, every child, every creature. I'm wiping all of it out because it's all broken. It's all sinful. It's all wicked. It is offensive to a holy God. That's how it plays out. The end. See you next week. <laughs> no, we, we can't forget Noah. Because God doesn't forget Noah. There is one righteous man. Not, not everybody is wicked. Look with me in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What a stark contrast to the start of the chapter. What a stark contrast to his generation, a, a generation full of people who are, who are wicked, whose intentions of their hearts are in, uh, entirely corrupt, a generation of people who are multiplying and reproducing wickedness on the face of the earth. And here is one man, Noah, who has the favor of God. In a generation that God says, I want to wipe them out. I'm going to take them out. I, I am done with it. There is one man that has the favor of God. There's one man who walks with God. Noah had God's favor, not because he was somehow great, not that he was somehow a really nice guy, but, but because he had his faith in God. He walked with God. He was considered a righteous and blameless man because he, he had a relationship with the God who created all things. He called upon the name of the Lord, as it says in Genesis chapter 4. And Noah was the only one. In a world full of people, Noah was the only one who called upon the name of the Lord. He's the only one who worshipped God. He's the only one that walked with him. And so Noah, in contrast to everybody else around him, Noah had the favor of God. So God tells him his plan in verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Let's go down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under, the heaven, under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So notice... He doesn't just say that all people are wicked. Notice he doesn't just say that all human beings are corrupted. Notice he says that, that uh, God saw the earth in verse 12, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh. Not just all people, but all flesh. That means that all animals were corrupted. All animals exhibited violence. That means that, that all insects in the, the insect world exhibited violence and corruption. That means that the fish in the seas exhibited violence and corruption. They were all taking their cues from the people who were supposed to be leading them, the people that God had chosen as their rulers because the people on the planet were all violent and corrupt. And so all of creation, the whole created order, was corrupted and violent because human beings were leading it in sin and brokenness. All flesh was corrupt in God's eyes. All of it was violent. And so God says, I'm going to do away with it. I'm going to, I'm going to wash it away in a flood. 
I'm going to wipe out my creation. But he establishes a covenant with Noah. In verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now, the idea of a covenant, we, we don't need to get into all the specifics and, and nuances of what a covenant means, but basically it's a strong promise. It's a strong, unbreakable promise between God and man in this case. So God is making a, a covenant with, uh, with Noah. Now, what's interesting is the wording when he says, I am establishing my covenant with you 100% of the time in the Bible. That doesn't mean that he's starting a new covenant. It always means that he is reaffirming an old one. And so what's happening here is God isn't starting something new with Noah. He's not saying, hey, I like you a lot. I'm going to start a new covenant with you. What, what he's doing, he's saying, I, he's making Noah a new Adam. He's saying, I'm going to wipe out the planet, but my covenant with mankind to, to be made in my image, to be rulers over creation, I'm continuing that with you. And, and Noah is being set up as this new Adam figure. Because God is about to wipe away his creation and start again. We see that not only does God save Noah and establish a covenant with him, but he, he instructs Noah to bring two of every living creature uh, into the ark so that they can also survive. Notice again, he is recreating the world. He's wiping out his creation and starting over because his creation today is corrupt. His creation on the face of the world was violent and wicked. So he's wiping it out and starting over with Noah. Verse 22, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. That's why Noah had the favor of God in the first place. That's why this covenant started, is because Noah followed God. Noah had his faith in God. And so God says, I'm wiping it out, and I'm starting over with you. And Noah says, I'm following you. You know, I'd rather be on the boat than off the boat. <laughs> so chapter 7, God follows through with his promise. God keeps his word in all of chapter 7. So God uh, tells Noah to build a boat. He builds this, this massive ark. Now picture uh, your Noah for a second. Right? There are so many miracles in chapter 7, so many little incredible moments that, that I can't take time to, to dig through every single one of them. But, but just picture that you're Noah for a second. Right? God comes to you and says, hey, I'm wiping everything out. I'm going to kill everything. Build a boat. And uh, you're probably a little sad for a second because God's going to wipe out everybody that you know. Uh, he's going to wipe out uh, everybody that you come in contact with, your neighbors, your, your business partners. Like he's, he's wiping them all out. They're all going to die, but, but they're all wicked, so it's probably not that big of a loss anyways. But uh, at the end of the day, God comes to you and says you're wiping him out, so you take a second to process that. Uh, and then you take a second to process the fact that he wants you to build a massive boat, so you do that. And as soon as you complete this massive boat on your property, your front yard looks like a zoo. Like God brings two of every living creature on the planet to you, uh, and then they just start getting on the boat, right? Your, your, your new zoo is now mobile, and they get all, the, all of these creatures just start walking onto the boat. And so you get on the boat. You gather your family together. You're in this massive ark with, with all, uh, two of every creature on the planet, and uh, you get your family together, and then God shuts the door of the ark behind you. 
all of those little moments are mind-blowing. But every single one of them is an example of God keeping his word. He's going to wipe out the earth, but he's going to protect Noah. He's going to protect the creatures on the ark. He is restarting, rebooting creation with Noah. And so as soon as God shuts the door of the ark, if you're Noah, uh, you're probably praising God that you're in the boat. <laughs> you, are, you are praising God that you are where you are, because look with me in verse 11 of chapter 7. <laughs> look at what happens outside of the boat. In verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So as soon as Noah's in the boat and God shuts the door behind them, the ground splits open and water starts flowing out of it. Like water just starts gushing out of the ground and the rain uh, fills the sky and starts pouring down on the earth. Now, now, the people who didn't die in that initial blast of water are probably running to their homes to, to wait out this rainstorm. But as the waters keep rising, their homes begin to get flooded, and so they start running for the highest piece of land that they can find. All creatures on the earth running, you know, crawling, climbing, gnawing at each other, trying to get to that, that highest peak of the land, but the waters keep rising, and they keep rising. And they keep rising until finally there's not a single peak on the world to stand on. Every human being, every animal, every creature, everything that's on the earth dies. Everything gets wiped out. It says in verse 21, in verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Uh, you may not know how deep a cubit is, but just know that that's too deep to stand. So that's, and it covers the mountains. All flesh died that, uh, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him on the ark. That sounds really harsh. And that sounds brutal. But keep in mind, this is an offensive generation. This is a people who are wicked, who are broken, who are corrupt, and living in open rebellion against God. This is a people who are violent and, and, and corrupting all of creation so that all of the animals and all of the insects and all of the, the fish and everything in created order is all broken, is all corrupted, is all violent. And it's all offensive to a holy God. How else should he respond? He responds the only logical way, and that's to wipe it out. That's to, to do away with it because it's offensive to him. It is all broken. It's all worthless, so he does away with it. And everything on the planet is dead. Everything that walked on earth, everything that once had breath in its lungs, God took it away. It all died. Now the whole world is covered with water. Now, now every single rock and crevice is underwater. And it's just Noah and a bunch of animals on a boat. And that could also have been the end of the story. God promised that he would uh, restart with Noah. God promised that he 
would re, uh, redo creation uh, with Noah at the helm, but he didn't have to promise that. But instead, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers Noah. They're sitting there on the water, getting rocked back and forth by the waves, trying to keep the tons of animals calm. And God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and rain fell from the heavens. Uh, the rain that fell from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. So God remembered Noah. God kept his covenant with Noah, and he, he let the waters abate. The, the, the waters began to, to descend, and, and it took a really long time for the earth to dry, as you would probably imagine, but, but after a, a lengthy period of time, finally the earth dries out. And so the ark comes to land on the top of this mountain, and, and God tells Noah, let the animals go. He tells them to, to set them free. So he, he sets them free, and look in 17 of chapter 8. God tells Noah, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, if that language sounds familiar, it should. Because that's the similar wording to what he says in Genesis chapter 1. These creatures are going to begin to swarm on the face of the earth, and they're going to be fruitful, and they're going to multiply, each according to their kind. That is very similar wording to what we see in Genesis chapter 1. God is recreating the world. He is he's doing a, a strong reboot. <laughs> He has wiped away the wicked, worthless, corrupt, violent generation, and he is restarting creation uh, through Noah and through these creatures. I mean, think back to the first verse in chapter 8. When there are waters over, the, over the, the surface of the world, and God causes the wind to come across that water. The word wind in Hebrew is the exact same word for spirit. So it's, it, it is directly paralleling Genesis chapter 1 when the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. Think back to Genesis chapter 1 when God speaks and dry land appears out of the water. Think back to the Genesis chapter 1 when God is bringing order out of chaos. God is recreating the entire planet, the entire created order. He's restarting it here, and he has established his covenant with Noah, saying, you were made in my image. You were to rule over creation. We are doing a, a strong reboot here because what was on the earth was worthless and broken. So we're going to restart. Well, did it fix anything? Did it work? Look with me in verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of... Uh, I'm going to stop there for a second. Never again going to curse the ground because of man. That's a good start. Right? This, this recreation happens. Noah gets out and he starts making offerings and sacrifices to God and God smells it and is pleased and says, I'm not going to wipe out man again with a flood. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And that, is an, that is an excellent start to this new creation. That's a, that's a great beginning to this, this whole recreated order through Noah as this new Adam. But, but look at the next line. 
I'm not going to curse the ground again because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You see that one line embedded in that really nice promise? God says, I'm not going to wipe out the earth with a flood again. As long as the earth exists, all the seasons are going to exist. Nothing's going to stop. I'm not going to wipe out all of creation again in that same way. But man is still evil. All of man's intentions are evil from his youth. Every, every single thought of man, every single action of man is still wicked. Did it work? No. The world was just as corrupted as it was before. Noah was not a better Adam than Adam was. And mankind was still broken, was still corrupted, was still wicked. It says in chapter 9, it makes this whole chapter, chapter 9, that much more incredible. Keep, keep, in fact that, keep in mind the fact that this generation, Noah and his kids and their descendants all the way to now, are no better than the generation in the flood. God says in chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He is giving Noah the same command that he gave Adam. He said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with life. Have kids. Have their kids have kids. Just fill the earth. They're still wicked. They're still broken. They're still corrupted. And God's allowing them to continue. God allows them to continue to have kids, to continue to give life to people. He, he also gives them control over the animals to some extent. He says that he's going to put the fear of man and dread upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So there's still some level and, of ruling and control over the animals. But now it's not uh, animals following after our every command. Now it's not us ruling over them. Uh, and them following us perfectly. Now it's us ruling over them in fear. They're not following us, they're fearing us. But there's still some level of control over the animal kingdom. There's still some level of control over the world. God puts the fear of animals, uh, fear of man in animals. And he also provides animals for food for us. Uh, he, God understands the state of the world. He understands that we need food, and so he provides every animal as, as sustenance for us. He provides uh, animals as, as an opportunity for us to eat and be fed and continue to live. But at the same time, in verse uh, 4, he also instructs Noah to instruct their kids and their kids and their kids to have a high regard for life. As he says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So he's, God is, is reaffirming the fact that the, the life of man has value. And that, that we as human beings need to hold others' lives in high esteem. There's, there's value there in the life of man. Keep in mind what we just talked about. That we are still wicked, that we are still broken, that we are still evil, selfish, broken people, and God has given us as human beings the opportunity to continue to live and has instructed us to hold, uh, hold the life of mankind with high esteem and high value. 
And again in verse 7, you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Same wording in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 8, we begin to see one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament. Keep in mind everything that we have just learned, everything that we know about mankind, that God recreated the world and with Noah and with uh, creation, and it didn't work. He recreated the world, and, and everybody is still sinful. Everybody is still broken. That The corruption and the violence that existed before the flood is still existing in the world today. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, he says, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living, creation, uh, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Notice what God says. He says that despite the fact that you're wicked, despite the fact that you're evil, despite the fact that you are corrupted and violent, I'm not going to wipe you out with a flood. And when you see rain clouds form, when you see waters begin to rise, you can see the rainbow and know that God isn't done with humanity yet. That this isn't the end, that this isn't God wiping us out. He should, but he is choosing by his grace to to, to keep us alive. He's choosing by his grace to not give up on humanity, to not end us and, and destroy us where we stand because we're corrupt, we're wicked, we're evil, but God, by his grace, isn't wiping us out. Do you want the, the main idea of the covenant with Noah, the main idea of this chapter, or these set of chapters, is that our sin deserves judgment. Our sin deserves the wrath of God, but praise God for his grace. And that isn't just uh, an exhortation saying, praise God. That, that is a command, like, praise God for his grace. We deserve the same judgment that they received. We are just as bad as the people in Noah's day. We are just as wicked as the people who were washed away in the flood. The world that we inhabit is just as corrupt. It is just as violent. And we are no better than those people. Don't, don't get it in your head that they were somehow worse than us. They weren't. Every single one of us is deserving of the wrath of God because of our sin. Every single one of us should be wiped out and destroyed because of our sin. But God in his grace is allowing us to live. God in his grace hasn't wiped out humanity. God in his grace is not done with us yet. Far too many of us don't have as, as 
as big of a view of our sin as we should. We don't see it as, as the problem that it is. Far too many of us like to minimize our sin and make excuses for it. Say, well, I'm, I get angry. I have a, a, a short fuse, a quick temper, but that's just how I grew up. That's just how I was raised. My dad was like that. My granddad was like that. My great-granddad was like that. That's just my, my DNA. Say, well, I'm addicted to pornography, but... You know, what I do in my spare time is no one else's business, and the culture doesn't see it as that big of a deal. Well, I'm gossiping, but really I'm just fact-finding. I'm just <laughs> trying to find information. I've got to stay up to date on things. We, we are great at minimizing our sin and acting like it's not that big of a deal, making, making excuses for everything that we do and why it's somebody else's fault. And we're just products of our culture. We're just products of our background. We take no responsibility for the fact that every single one of us is broken and sinful and deserving of the wrath of God. Your sin is not a small deal. You are offending a holy, righteous, perfect God, and you know what that deserves? Judgment. Like that deserves his wrath. We should be wiped away in a flood or fire or whatever else because God is a holy, perfect, righteous God, and we're not. We are broken and we open rebellion against him. So don't treat your sin like it's a small deal. Don't treat your sin like it's not that big of a problem. It is huge. It's rebellion against the creator. But at the same time, in the same breath, Recognizing how big of a problem our sin is, we can praise God for his grace. Because if we understand just how big of a problem our sin is, we'll understand just how great the grace of God is. If we know that we're broken and deserve wrath, if we know that we are broken and deserve to be destroyed, we know that the fact that we're alive is a, a huge miracle by the grace of God. The fact that we have breath in our lungs is the grace of God deciding not to wipe us out. And that is huge. So recognize how big your sin is, but also recognize and praise God for his grace. And not just his grace that you're alive. That is incredible. That's insane. That's the promise that he made Noah, is that you will continue to be allowed to live, that he's not done with humanity yet. But God, in future weeks, will see has made a way for you to experience so much more. Not just to, to be alive and continue in your sin, but God, by Jesus Christ, has enabled you to have life, to be uh, restored in your relationship with God. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for being a God who loves us and cares for us and has decided by his own mercy and love, not on account of any good that's within us, but only because of his love for us has decided to save us. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. We're about to sing. I'm going to invite the, the band up. But when we start to sing, I don't want you to get up immediately. When we start to, to lift up praises to God, I don't want you to immediately stand up and sing. I want you to take a moment and reflect on the fact that you are broken and sinful. Re reflect on the fact 
that, that you need to stop making excuses for your sin, that your sin is a big deal to a holy God. So take a moment and pray that God would convict you of your sin, that he would, he would point out all the times that you've fallen short of his glory and that you would be broken for it. But at the same breath, praise God for his grace. Take a moment to, 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 to sing and to celebrate the, the grace of God. Be filled up with an understanding of just how great God's grace is so that when you're ready to sing, you are just bursting at the seams, filled with the love of God and His grace, ready to praise and worship God for the, for the grace that He has provided you when you didn't deserve it. Some of you this morning have never received the grace of God. Some of you this morning have never placed your faith in Jesus. You Now you recognize that you are alive because of God's grace, but you, there's more. There's more grace that you can receive. There's life found in Jesus that he's offering you. So if that's you this morning and you've never experienced the grace of God, you've, you've never experienced this life, I'm going to ask you to take the bold step while everyone's head is bowed, when everyone is praying and reflecting on their sin and the grace of God, while everyone is 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 taking that time with the Lord. I want you to, to take the bold step of, of coming up to the front and talking with me about what it means to follow Jesus. Don't wait. Don't stay under the judgment of God any longer than you have to. He's extending grace. This morning as we begin to sing, that's you, if you never place your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come and talk to me. Every single one of us needs to have a, a growing appreciation for the grace of God. However great you think God's grace is, it is so much greater. So every single one of you, take a moment to pray that God would convict you of your sin and that he would show you just how great his grace is. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, come and talk to me. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, your grace is, I can't find a word. Uh, there's nothing to compare it to. There, there's no amount of grace that I can find on the planet to compare it to your grace. That your mercy and your forgiveness are limitless, God. You, you love us purely because that's your nature. God, I pray that you would, you would convict us of every moment where we have fallen short of your glory, every moment where we have rebelled against you, God, where we have offended your holiness. God, I pray you would point that out. God, I pray that you would, you would raise our appreciation, you would, you would raise our, our, our love for you because of your grace. God, that we would walk out of those doors with the, the gospel on our lips and, and your praise on our tongue because we are people who have experienced and really truly know the grace of God. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Take your time.